Well, hello, Fellowship family. It's great to have you here today as we uh, begin our Christmas series called Christmas on Purpose, being intentional with this time of year. Before I get going, I want to just say thank you. We, uh, as you came in that front uh, atrium there, you saw a whole bunch of bins, and we filled those bins with presents that uh, we're going to be doing for a, a, a program called Affordable Christmas in the High, High Crest neighborhood. And uh, we had over 500 opportunities for you to give or to show up and serve, and pretty much all of those have been taken. So we thank you for your generosity. That's an awesome, uh, awesome opportunity that we have. And I also want to celebrate, uh, you know, when we built this uh, expansion, we took 10% out of every dollar given on that initial uh, uh, expansion campaign, and we're building churches all around the world. We're building one in Ethiopia. We've built four in India. And this one is in Santiago, Isabella, Philippines. And uh, this church is going to be completed this month. It takes a while, uh, but this church is getting uh, done. And if you remember, uh, Brett Durbin shared uh, this news that they were doing the, the groundbreaking a few months ago. Well, this will be completed this month. And remember, Two years ago, this was the group that said, what is a God? They were wondering about that. And now Jesus Christ is going to be preached from that place at the end of this month. So thank you. Thank you very much for your generosity. And I also want to tell you, as we think about year-end giving, uh, every dollar this month in December that's given over our budget, we're going to be using to complete the repurposing of our children's building and the completion of our furnishings of our nursery. And uh, each month we have over a thousand children and students who use those spaces. And uh, we used to worship in those areas and we need to repurpose them to make them a little more kid and family friendly. So that's going to happen with every dollar given over our budget on this month. And again, we want to thank you for your generosity and what God is doing here. It is a great season to be generous and to facilitate helping children and students find and follow Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus Christ is really the reason why we're here today, and he's the reason for the celebration of Christmas. There's no place in the Bible that it calls us to celebrate the birth of Christ. The New Testament church most likely didn't celebrate it. What did they celebrate? They celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because that proved everything was true about the claims uh, and the works of Jesus. But I want one verse to guide us over the course of this month. And that verse is not the, the birth story, it's the purpose of Jesus. Paul talks about it in 1 Timothy 1.15. It's nine words that I want you to remember. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the purpose of why we celebrate Christmas. This week we're going to be talking about Christ Jesus, the identity of Jesus. Next week, we'll be looking of, of Christ Jesus who came into. We'll be looking at the incarnation next weekend. The weekend after that, we'll be looking at the world. The world Jesus came into, the world we live in today. And then on Christmas Eve, December 24th, we're going to be looking at that whole purpose to save sinners, his purpose for coming. I hope you'll plan to be here throughout this series because I think it will deepen our trust in Christ and if you don't know him, it will, it will deepen your understanding of why Jesus had to come to this world to save sinners. 
As I think about this first part of the identity of Jesus Christ, it's a question I hear a lot when I talk to people and when people are open and honest with me, especially about faith. They ask the question, is Jesus God? Many have no problem believing that the person of Jesus, a historical man, was born and that he lived on this earth. He was a good man and he lived a life that many of us could follow. But was he God? And to answer that, I want to talk to you about two things. I want to talk to you about the account of the life of Jesus as shown in the New Testament, namely Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, and the story of Jesus in Matthew and in Luke. What do they proclaim Jesus as? How do they present Jesus? And then I want to talk to you about the person of Jesus. By looking at these two things, I'd like to move us into the story that we're called into and to think about how the shepherds move from information about Jesus to the worship of Jesus. Let's take a look at that. And first of all, as we look at the account of Jesus, the account of Jesus, is it accurate? Let's take a look at that, the account. And if you have your Bibles, open up there with me to Luke chapter 2. This talks about the birth of Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there were shepherds out nearby watching their their flock at night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And this is what it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. I think if we can, if we can kind of align with anyone here, we want to align with the shepherds, right? They heard this story. They saw this supernatural event. They experienced the glory of God. And then they looked at each other and said, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's go to the place that it was just revealed to us about to find the person. And when we find the person, let's just see if it's true. That's what I want to do with you today. I want to take you back to those places. I want to talk about this uh, account of the birth of Jesus, can we be reasonably sure that it's accurate? And the answer is, I think we can. I think we can. And for two reasons. Number one, because it was told to us by eyewitnesses. The account of Jesus was told to us by eyewitnesses, people who were there, people who saw it with their own eyes. I think about this. There's a power in an eyewitness, isn't there? When you see something with your own eyes and experience something or someone, you can say, yes, that person's true. Yes, that event happened. And and here, the account of the life or the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus wasn't just observed by one person. It was observed by many people. Paul would even say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 was visibly seen. He was, there were eyewitnesses. Over 500 saw the living resurrected Jesus. 
Acts 26, 26, Paul is making the case for Jesus before King Agrippa at Caesarea by the sea. And he said, King, King, this has not been done in a corner. In other words, it's not just an obscure account, not just something a few people would know. It's something a lot of people would know. It happened right in the center and right with the people who saw it with their own two eyes. Yet this has been an issue that skeptics and cynics of the life of Jesus always attack. It's been, it's been uh, put forth in many institutions that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written on a, over a long period of time, far after, hundreds of years after the events happened. And what the church did is the church wanted to make Jesus God. So after 300 years of Jesus living, they rewrote the events. They sensationalized the account. They embellished the story, turning Jesus into God over time. This is the most common and least challenged teaching of the secular world concerning the account of Jesus. But if you do the work and you examine the evidence, you will find a vastly different story. Unlike the assertion that the church made Jesus into God over time and over hundreds of years after his life, the reality of the account is that it was never hundreds of years, but it was just a few years. Take a look at this dateline. In AD 30, Jesus resurrected. Mark was written, the account of the life of Jesus is told by Mark, was written in the 50s. Matthew and Luke were also written in the 60s. And John was written sometime in the 80s. Luke was also written by, uh, Luke also wrote the book of Acts, which is the, the story of the early church. And at the end of the book of Acts, the apostle Paul is still living. He doesn't tell of the death of Paul, which means that Paul didn't die yet. Paul was martyred outside of Rome in the year 68 AD. Folks, this is not 1968. This is 68, first century church. So Luke must have finished his entire account of the life of Jesus and the life of the early church, the events of the early church, before Paul died. That's within 38 years that whole account was done of the resurrection. But it's not just about Luke, right? It's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul came to Christ about two years after the resurrection. And again, he died in 68. So from 32 to 68, the Apostle Paul had his ministry. He talks about Paul going and learning about Jesus, learning from the Old Testament scriptures who Jesus was. It talks about Paul going to the church in Jerusalem and the eyewitnesses, the apostles of the resurrected Jesus told him the story about Jesus. Within two to five years of the resurrection, it was affirmed by the church who Jesus was. It was right in the middle of where Jesus resurrected. So if anyone had a question, they could go to someone who saw Jesus and ask, did you really see him? Did, was he really alive? And yes, yes, he was. And Paul writes this creed. This was a creed of the early church, which was formed and stated every time they got together. He shows it in Colossians chapter 1. Take a look at that. Verse 15 through 17. He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He's the glue. (laughs) Now, when I die, I hope there are things that are nice that are written about me. But nothing like this will be written about me. Nothing. Why? Because these are God terms. These are statements that can be made about no one except God and Jesus was God. New Testament church within two to five years after had a formed and repeated creed about who Jesus was. Not hundreds of years after. If you look at it, if you look at it from the beginning, from the resurrection, people who were doubting who Jesus was were confirmed. This is who he is. The story is told from eyewitnesses but it's also told through archaeology. That's the second thing I want you to think about, about the account of Jesus. It's affirmed by archaeology. And archaeology is the science of life in the past from the remains or the ruins of what we have today. And by looking at that, it's a science. And I understand that people of faith sometimes are skeptical of people of science as people of science are skeptical of people of faith. The two can go together. And I think 90%, sometimes even 95 or 6% of science can be consistent with the scriptures of what science brings forth. As affirmed by archaeology, there were people, there were places, there were events detailed in the birth of Christ that we can go back to and go, yes, that person ruled at that time. That place was there because we can see the ruins that are there. That person existed because they're in historical evidence of that time. Let's take a look at how this story is brought forth in Luke. Luke was a meticulous historian. He wrote not only the life of Jesus, but he also wrote the New Testament church. He traveled with Paul, but he also interviewed eyewitnesses like shepherds, like Mary herself, and got the story about Jesus. Look at how he introduces this story about the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, we can trace That in those days, when did Caesar rule? Right around the time Jesus was born. That the world should be registered. Now, this was another thing that skeptics will ask the question. We don't see anything of people going back to their towns like Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem to be registered. But there was. There was a discovery in which one of the Egyptian leaders for the Roman Empire did exactly this thing, just a few years after Caesar Augustus called for this. And then verse 2, it says, But this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. That name, Quirinius, is not something we name our kids, right? Anyone named Quirinius this morning? We have different names. But in the Roman Empire, one of their leaders was named Quirinius. But the one that they had originally found named Quirinius ruled at a far different time and different place than this region of Syria. Except more recently, within the past 40 years, they uncovered a coin in Syria that had the small imprint on it, Quirinius. The coin confirmed there was a second Quirinius who ruled at a different time but ruled in this area of Syria. 
And then in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, it talks about another Roman leader named Licinius. Again, we don't name our child Licinius, but it kind of sounds like this kid's going to be an evil kid, right? Licinius. But he, he was named that, but he ruled at a different place than where, uh, where Luke describes him. And again, they came across an inscription more recently that showed there was another ruler named Licinius. Now you go, Joe, come on. The odds of two Roman leaders ruling at different times, yet named the same name, it seems a little far-fetched, doesn't it? Not really. Not really. If you look at U.S. history, in the under 250 years that we've existed, have we had a president named the same name? Yes. Yes, we have. We've had names like John Adams and John Quincy Adams. He had to use his middle name to be separated from the first John Adams. We've had John Tyler You may not know him. John Coolidge, John F. Kennedy, all the same first names. But what about last names? Let's make it even more trickier. Well, we've had the same last name of Johnson, of Adams, of Harrison, of Roosevelt. We've had Bushes in our lifetimes. Yeah, we've had names that have... And you go, all the probability. It's happened in our short history. One of the comments I keep hearing about people who do ancient history is they wonder what professors who teach American history do with their afternoons. (laughs) Because it's so small, small, small compared to ancient history. And yet here we have the Roman Empire showing us that due to looking at the historicity of the Bible through archaeology, that these places are confirmed. But then there's another place here that Joseph in verse three or four, he went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth. Nazareth was such a small place at the time of Christ. Most scholars believe it was a place of 400 people. So much so that when Jesus showed up on the scene and the disciples were called, uh, told that he was from Nazareth. I love what Nathaniel said. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was such a dinky place. How could anyone who had significance or influence come from such a poor place like Nazareth? And people wondered, how did this place really exist? Well, several years ago, I went back to the Holy Land and I went to Nazareth. Here's why. Because Nazareth is a different place today. My grandmother grew up in Nazareth. But right outside, I wanted to look for what were places that, that were there during the time of Jesus. And here's what they discovered. They unearthed this. And you may not think like this is anything important, but where our guide is showing us there, that used to be a wine press. And they would bring the grapes there, and in order not to crush the seed, because if you crush the seed on a grape, you bitter the wine. So they step on them, and it would flow down to where his feet are, and there was a vat there. And that's where it would go. This was right around the place Jesus grew up, Nazareth. It's been an identified place. And more than one person had to live in a place where a wine press like that. It was a community of people lived in a place around Nazareth at that time. Another place. Here's the background of archaeology. Keep digging. Keep digging. 
More and more places that I visited in the, in the Holy Lands, they were places that everyone had, had uh, a skeptical attitude about. They couldn't have happened there. Like when Jesus, excuse me, Peter preached at the south end of the Temple Mount and 3,000 people came to Christ and 3,000 people were baptized. Skeptics said, how in the world could 3,000 people be baptized in a place like that? Within the past 15 years, that whole region area around that was uncovered. It was unearthed, and they found no less than 48 ceremonial baths where people could be baptized. Folks, keep digging. Keep digging, and you'll find that over and over, archaeology supports the account of Jesus. But it's not just the account I want to talk to you. It's the person of Jesus, and the Bible is very clear that it does support that Jesus is God. From the moment he, he resurrected, there was an unconditional acceptance. There was a full acceptance of he being shown as God, him being accepted as God. But how do the scriptures portray him? Even in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before he came, Jesus is shown as God. Jesus is shown as the Messiah. 700 years before he was born, the prophet Isaiah says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah was talking about this Messiah who would come. He would comfort a people who had walked away from the Lord and were right about to be scattered to the ends of the earth. And he would call them and let them know God still has them on their mind. There will be a Savior. There will be a Messiah who comes. Prophecy has shown. You know, there's eight specific prophecies in the New Testament, or excuse me, the Old Testament, about the coming of Christ. But scholars believe, as they look around the scriptures, that there's over 300 specific prophecies in which Jesus came and fulfilled. Just the ones concerning his birth, where he would be born, of which family he would come from, there is a greater possibility of these prophecies relating to one person. Here's, here's the probability of that happening. Scholars have told us that if you were to take silver dollars and cover two feet deep the state of Texas, you know how big that is? I lived in Texas. And they know they're big, by the way. <laughs> but this place, I mean, there's, there, from one end of Texas to the other, it's actually shorter to drive from Dallas to Chicago than one end to the next. Of, of, of Texas. But if you would take the state of Texas and cover it two feet deep with silver dollars, and you were to write on one of those silver dollars an inscription that would make it unique and threw it into the state of Texas, the odds of one person coming in with a blindfold at any place in Texas and picking up that stone or that, that, that coin is, is a, that's a, that's a better possibility than these prophecies relating to one person. Yet, Jesus showed up and fulfilled these prophecies. And there's 300 of them that Jesus fulfilled. 
Prophecy shows us that Jesus would come. Prophecies predicted he would be born in a place called Bethlehem. He would be a savior. He would set his people free, and he has. Look at how Matthew meticulously brings this forth to a Jewish audience. He goes back and he goes, he quotes Isaiah chapter chapter 7, and he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Even the Gentile magi or the wise men who in a faraway country searched the Old Testament scriptures of the Jews and found in Micah, in which, in which Matthew kind of sources here, Micah 5, which we read last uh, yesterday in our reading plan. He says, and you, O Bethlehem, they even named the place, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They proclaimed, they affirmed what prophecy predicted Jesus fulfilled. But then there's also the person of Jesus as fulfilled in reality. He was just not a figurative person. He was truly the fulfillment of the prophecy. And when he showed up, he, his character, his essence was God himself in the flesh. I like how the, the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 verse 15 says, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. We have the account called our, the scriptures, which is the revelation of God. But we now also have the person of Jesus in which we're called to make a faith statement about. And so like the shepherds, what was Jesus? What was Jesus calling them to? What was God doing in their lives through this? I love how John talks about it. John presents Jesus with seven key statements, the I am statements. And if you came from a Jewish perspective, you would know that when anyone says I am, you're going back Old Testament to a name of God. I am. No one said I am if they weren't if they weren't God in these types of statements. So over the course of the ministry of Jesus, you have, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. And here in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now look at this. Verse 7 says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Do you know what Jesus is saying there? He was saying, if you have seen me, you have seen God. If you know me, you know God. If you have trusted me, you have trusted in God. If you have heard from me, you heard the very word of God. That's why John, from the very beginning of his gospel, would say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld him as of the one and only son of God, full of grace and truth. God is full of that. And when Jesus walked this earth, Jesus was God in the flesh. He is the way, the truth, and the life. I would just ask you now, now that you've heard a, a, a reasonable explanation about the count of Jesus, and you have used, as you have seen the reality of Jesus, what he said about himself, by the way, every one of his eyewitnesses' followers put forth that Jesus was God and that there was no sin in him whatsoever. Even his enemies, 
Even his enemies, they said, it, only God could say that thing. Only God could do that thing. And they would have been, they, they chose not to believe because they rejected him. Unless he really was God. Then he really could say what he said. And he really could do what he did. On the account, there's certainly, there's certainly an angle in which we, like the shepherds, would want to know more. And that's exactly what they did. Look at Luke 2, 16. It says, they went with haste. In other words, they hurried. And they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Remember I always told you this was gathered by eyewitnesses? Can you picture Luke, a meticulous historian, going back to Bethlehem after the resurrection of Jesus and talking with the shepherds? These guys who probably wouldn't even be allowed to, to, they, they were so low class that they weren't allowed to testify in court. Yet Luke goes and talks to him. What did you see? What did you hear? What did you do? And he writes it down. And then he goes to Mary. He joins Mary, probably sits at her feet. Mary, when Jesus was born, you gave birth to him in Bethlehem. And you saw this. And you, the shepherds came and they shared their story. How did you feel? I treasured up all these things. They were a treasure to me. That's one of the greatest joys I had in my life. He's writing down that account. But it was an account that was more than to give them wonder, which is what they did. Look at verse 20. The shepherds returned then, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had, to- as it had been told them. You know what this is? This is seeing the account, seeing the events match with what the angels told them, going to the place and seeing Mary and Joseph and the baby. But it ended in worship. It started with wonder. And you know what? Christmas is that time of wonder. It is. But it's also a time of myth and magical stories. We need it. We need to redeem this time for the person, Christ Jesus, who came into the world to save sinners. And the shepherds didn't just hear a cool story. They went to the place You can go to the place. It's called the account of Jesus. The shepherds just didn't go, yep, that was pretty cool how it matched the account. It ended with their faith and expression of worship and praise to the God who revealed his very son on earth that was born in Bethlehem, which is just what had been told them. Today's an opportunity for our response to move on what we have been told into who we will be. We will be people, we need to move from that that people of wonder of a really good story to people of worship of Jesus. That's what I want to call you into. This Jesus, Christ Jesus, came into the world to save sinners. Not only should we accept the account, we should believe the person. The person predicted by prophecy and fulfilled in reality. Come, let us adore him. Maybe you're here and you had just heard about this story. It was a good story. You may have heard it from your childhood, disconnected, and now are back. Can I just call you back to the Jesus of the story? 
Can I call you back? Maybe you would, like a shepherd, heard in wonder, let me call you to worship, to submit your life to him, to allow him to save you, to be that savior who was born for us. This Christ Jesus, who came into the world to save sinners, requires a response. To any one of us, and we all are sinners, because none of us are here because we deserve to be here. We're all sinners, need to bow down, and we need to allow Jesus to do something which we can't do for ourselves. We need him to live for us, and he did perfectly. We need him to die for us, because none of us can satisfy the price of our sin. And we needed him to raise from the dead, to defeat the power of sin and death in our lives. And so Christmas is of time, of opening that gift. It's not earned or deserved. You don't measure up. You simply receive it. You receive it with a humble heart that confesses your sins and trusts in the only one who can save you, Christ Jesus. He came into this world to save sinners. Trust him today. This moment, if that's you, would you just submit your heart to him? Would you just confess, God, I am a sinner. Thank you for sending Jesus to live, die, and rise from the dead for me. I trust you. I receive the gift of Jesus. And if that is you, welcome to his family. You are now part of his family, the people of Christ followers, his church, that someday he will return again and receive to himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, come, let us adore you. Let us bow down before you. Let us be people who move from wonder at this time of year to believe the person and the work of this Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, who, who came into this world to save sinners. We worship him. Move and order all of our celebration at this time of year to be more about Jesus and less of ourselves. We lift him up. It's in his name we pray. Amen.